to episode 86 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. My special guest this week is John Hildebrand. So John kind of discusses his whole background and what he's here for throughout the show. So I'm just going to stop talking and turn it over to John and he's going to take it from there. All right. Welcome to the studio, John Hildebrand. Good afternoon to you. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. I know. It's a great st- studio, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Every- yeah. Everybody's missing out cause yeah. since, it's, since this is just audio. Anyways, let's get to it. So, been a friend of mine for a long time. I'm not even sure when we met, but I have a, a feeling it's probably something to do with St. Patty's Day and Flanagan's or something like that. Yeah. Um, but I, I know you're getting ready here in a few weeks to go to Save a Warrior in Hilliard. Uh, you've been accepted to their next class and with the end of April, right? Uh, April 25th. Okay, so I want to kind of talk to you about, uh, and this is this is really mimicking what James Gearing from Behind the Shield did, but um, I want to talk to you about before, of kind of everything, your background of, of why you're going to this program, and then we'll give it a little bit of time, we'll come back, and we'll do an interview um, with you after going through the program and see, just, you know, what transpired in, in between and how things changed. Because everybody, I've, you know, you're you're now going to be the fourth person I've talked to that's been through Save a Warrior, and you know, uh, being Matt Forenza, Dave Freeman, and uh, uh, Delbert Grush, and they all have just amazing turnarounds. So of course, I'm hoping the same thing for you. Um, but. Why don't we just get started? I think it probably all started with you uh, being in the Navy, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. Um, so I, um, <clears throat> after high school, I, uh, eight days after graduation, I had enlisted in the Navy a year earlier. And uh, I enlisted as a rescue swimmer. Unfortunately, after I went through air crew school and uh, was starting the rescue swimmer phase, I actually, you know, was getting through rescue swimmer. We were getting near the end of the graduation. I found out I was going to fly fixed wing aircraft instead because I had a depth perception problem. So I, uh, I finished school, went to Memphis, Tennessee for my A school. Then I traveled up to Brunswick, Maine, and I did POW, uh, what they call SEER school. They drop you off in the woods. They teach you cold weather survival, and then they ultimately chase you down, hunt you down. Um, capture you and they confine you to a mock POW camp where you get tortured and you you don't get the real abuse that you would get in a real POW camp but you get a taste of it. Um, after there I, I rotated to Jacksonville, Florida where I did about nine months of training in P3 Orions at uh, Squadron VP30 and then uh, when I graduated there with my wings I deployed or was uh, basically transferred to uh, Barbers Point Naval Air Station in Hawaii. Um, I checked in there in October of 1994, right around the time we were deploying to the Middle East. So uh, I was there for just maybe two or three weeks um, in October of 94, and then I rotated out to the Middle East and started my deployment, uh, six-month deployment with the squadron. Uh, Where a lot of my problems started was uh, March 25th of 1995. Um, I was the new guy in the uh, squadron. Um, I did anti-submarine warfare, and uh, we had a guy that was grounded uh, because of an illness, and uh, they were looking for somebody to volunteer to take this flight. And it was on a uh, USS Topeka nuclear attack submarine. It was a real-world mission to go out and play basically a training flight, go out there and actually get some on-top time on a submarine. Um, so I, uh, my crew was Crew 1. This was Crew 9. And um, so I took the flight. So started off 4 o'clock in the morning pre-flight, uh, 4 a.m. Uh, briefing at the Tactical Support Center. Um, typically, the brief is about 
half an hour, 45 minutes for the, uh, you know, for at least for the enlisted guys. Um, and then we rotate out to the airplane. So we do our pre-flight, um, and then it was wheels up at 7 a.m. Uh, we went out and we tracked the Topeka. I got some real-world time on this guy for a couple of hours just playing cat and mouse. And um, we ended up leaving our, our um, mission early because we started having problems with one of our engines. Um, we had a um, what's called a prop pump light up in the cockpit. And basically it's like a, it's kind of an indication there's a hydraulic leak, um, as I pretend to know. Um, but the, uh, the engines themselves, it's a prop driven turboprop aircraft and the props um, can actually change the angle of the blade depending on where you're at in the atmosphere, less dense air, more dense air and stuff like that. Um, well, this blade, these blades got locked into a certain pitch and because we had dumped out all of the uh, hydraulic fluid that controls them across the engine nacelle. I didn't know with my probably five months of experience really flying at that point that it was anything severe. So I was sitting in the back window of the aircraft and, you know, we'd been up since about 3.30 that morning. This was about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So naturally I'm tired. Um, flying in a plane kind of takes a lot of energy out of you. And I'm sitting in this window with the sun beating down on me. And we were on our way into the airfield, and I literally, when I was awakened, I was awakened to this bang and this shuddering of the aircraft. And I opened up my eyes, and I'm looking out the window, and I'm expecting to see the ground and the runway lights flying by as we're, you know, coming to a stop on the runway. And instead, I see ocean, and I see smoke and fire billowing off the number four engine and across the wing. Um, as I looked out, I noticed the number three engine, the prop didn't look the same size as it normally looked. And I yelled out over the PA system up to the cockpit flight. We lost four. We lost four. We're on fire. We're on fire. And shortly after that, I, transmitting that over the PA, next thing I know is all the lights go out in the aircraft. The humming that we would normally hear in our ICS in our headset went away. Everything went quiet in the airplane. It was just the wind moving across the airplane as we were kind of gliding. Um, I turned to the uh, in-flight technician who sits across from me. He'd probably been in the Navy 12, 13, 14 years. Uh, his name was Mike. And Mike um, informed me. He just kind of yelled at me, we lost all four engines, put your helmet on. And that's when kind of the gravity of the situation hit. Um, we had no power. None of our engines were turning. And we were basically uh, turned from a powered aircraft into a gliding aircraft. Um, I remember hearing yelling up front in the cockpit. Um, one of our off-duty pilots went running up to the cockpit. He comes back and he's, he's like running to the back of the aircraft where the galley is and kind of where we sat and um, he's got his helmet on. <clears throat> and so I put my helmet on, I strapped up my seat and then it was kind of a, and it, it really happens when you have something life-threatening like that and you think you're going to die. I never believed it, but you, you have this miniature version of your life playing out before your eyes and so I started having memories of my childhood my brother my mom and dad and it was a very short-lived minute and a half kind of su uh, summary of my life and the next thing you know we're plowing into the water and we we skipped across the water a few times I had my eyes closed and I kept saying a prayer don't let us die and next thing I know, I, I look out just briefly for a split second right before we hit water. And I had never seen the ocean so close and so blue out the wing of our air, or out the window of my aircraft. And next thing you know, we're skipping across the water. Finally, we plow in to the water. And as we're still, there's still, there's stuff flying through the aircraft as we were skipping water everywhere. Next thing I know, we're kind of floating. 
and uh, the crew starts to scramble out, and we, 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 you know, we bail out the emergency exits, we're on life rafts, and then a short time later, my crew, ironically enough, at least the pilots and the flight engineers, um, they were circling over top of us. Um, our navigator was talking over the radio, kind of coordinating, saying, hey, everybody is okay, we've got all 11 crewmen, we're out. And, uh, and then we have a uh, Masir Oman, uh, Masir Air Force, um, forces, or the Omani Air Force rather, but out of Masira Air Base, um, they were over top of us with a helicopter picking us up. And um, I had some, you know, I had some difficulties getting it up into the aircraft, the helicopter, they put the hoist down and um, it was, it was almost like it was a cargo hook, a little bit too big to fit on this D-ring of this, these life vests that we wear um, when we're flying. Um, so finally they deployed the swimmer, there was a language barrier, he was full on uh, Arabic, um, and I was trying to explain to him and, you know, very, very, you know, <laughs> no, wasn't even speaking Arabic, but I'm trying to get him to understand that this thing isn't working. And he tries to wrap the cable around me and I had no part of that. I said, no, you can't wrap the cable around me. So he finally was able to uh, send out a, uh, a horse collar and he got it up around me and I was the first one in the helicopter. And then they picked up half the crew. They flew us back to Masira. Um, dropped us off where we went right to medical to be checked out and then they went out and picked the remainder of the crew up and so that was kind of the catalyst that was like the beginning um after that I, as far as i can remember from being a, a kid all i wanted to do was fly um, the movie top gun did that to me and uh you know flying after that wasn't fun anymore um you know they slowly they got us integrated back into the aircraft over the next couple of months um, after they did the mishap investigation and, uh, you know, it was, it was hard kind of getting back in the aircraft and flying at that point. Um, and it went on for four and a half years. I, um, I turned to alcohol as a coping mechanism. I had nightmares at night. Um, anytime we had some kind of an emergency or even a drill of an emergency in the aircraft, it, you know, gave me a lot of anxiety. Um, when we were flying through bad weather, the, the plane that I flew on was the same ones that they used for the hurricane hunters. And so this thing, you know, we didn't, uh, if there was bad weather, we'd fly through it. Um, you know, the submarine, or at least the, uh, the, you know, the naval combatants that we would go out and look at, these guys are plowing through, you know, rough seas and, and inclement weather. And same thing with us. We fly through this stuff. We try not to, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, the mission is important. And sometimes, you know, you put the crew at risk to, to fly in bad weather or fly through bad weather to get where you're going. And uh, so that was March 25th of 1995. Um, I, uh, during my time, I uh, had a friend approach me who was a hospital corpsman, and she kind of explained to me that, um, you know, I was drinking a lot and stuff, so I ended up voluntarily uh, putting myself into alcohol rehab. And uh, I did it, but the problem that I had with the military, at least with the Navy, was anytime we had change of command functions um, where the executive officer would take over as commanding officer, Anytime we had a pre-deployment party, an over-the-hump party, or a post-deployment party, any kind of like squadron functions, this was back in the 90s, you know, alcohol was kind of a, a regular um, thing at these. And to not be able to drink anymore, um, especially when you're, you know, trying to, uh, you know, to kick the habit of using alcohol as a crutch, um, you know, I would relapse. And so going to, you know, to uh, rehab, they, they, they ground you. So I'm not flying. So I'm just kind of a body now and I'm, you know, I'm taking up a flight billet. So I go through rehab, I relapse, I get sent back to rehab. This time it was involuntary. 
And they're telling me, you know, if you get caught drinking again, you know, we could kick you out of the Navy. Well, I got caught a third time, but ironically enough, it was just after I had uh, re-enlisted and I was on, I was waiting the PCS out. My squadron had deployed. They were on their way to Japan. I was kind of back in Hawaii. I didn't have anybody to answer to. And I ended up going out one night to save a friend who was drinking. And I had a few drinks of beer and I was driving his vehicle on the base and I got a DUI. Um... That was the end of it for me. Um, I got arrested that night, first time I'd ever been arrested. Um, I had blown just at the legal limit, but it was enough for the new commanding officer to want to make an example out of me. So um, instead of going to a captain's mess, where typically they give you 45 days restriction, 45 days extra duty, and then they'll do half months pay for two months, and then an administrative uh, separation from the Navy, I fought them. And um, I, I fought him at the advice of the command master chief, the senior enlisted person in this, uh, the squadron that I was attached to and I was on legal hold. Um, she said, you need to go down and fight this. Um, I had a, a, a great record um, as far as uh, being a sailor, never had been in any kind of trouble other than my stints through rehab and surviving the plane crash. Um, I was, a, you know, I, I, I was a supervisor. I put on E5 fairly quickly and um, I ended up going and fighting the um, fighting the Navy because I, you know, I didn't feel like I should be treated the way I was. And ironically enough, um, they end up uh, not calling my bluff, but the Navy said, well, listen, we'll let you out of your enlistment. You'll still get an honorable discharge. Um, we won't clip your wings off of you. We won't take a half month's pay for two months. We won't um, demote you to E4. So I took the deal um, and I got out. I don't think I would have survived if I had continued down that path. So getting out of the Navy, even though it was uh, it was kind of a bittersweet moment for me. And, you know, it was uh, when I moved back to Ohio, it was just drinking and drinking and drinking. I didn't work for about four months. I had a lot of money that I had built up on the severance pay from the military, so to speak, when I cashed out almost 60 days of vacation. So, um... I finally, uh, City of Dayton was putting on a, uh, um, I kind of bounced around for two years. I worked in Emory loading aircraft. I worked for a trucking company loading semi-trucks with a forklift. I did some assembly line work uh, for GM. Um, and then I worked at uh, Country Club of the North doing uh, landscaping. And so this is like a span of about two years. And so City of Dayton, I, I heard about this uh they were doing a civil service test for Dayton Fire Department. So I took the test. I think it was 2000. And um, I scored really well on the list. And I think I was like 17th on the list. And they had uh, veterans preference points they would give you and, and such. And um, I was just kind of waiting for a phone call. And um, I had reached out. I was talking to an old high school friend. And she told me her brother was working at a fire department, Butler Township. And, um, and one of our friends from high school was a lieutenant there. And his name was Brian. And so I went in to see Brian. I called him and uh, the chief actually, when I went in to visit the fire department, just to, I had never thought of becoming a firefighter, but when I studied for the Dayton test, it was an open book test. And I didn't know anything about firefighting. And the book they gave me to study, inside and out, every day I read this book, I learned, the, learned everything about it so I could really do well on this written open book test that they gave you. And, it, you know, it, I thought it was kind of cool. It was like it was paramilitary. It was kind of similar to, you know, the military. And so I thought, you know, this may be a good fit for me. And uh, ironically enough, the chief um, hired me in, um, 
hired me in like a, right there. I gave him an application. He kind of gave me a on-the-spot interview, and he hired me in as a as a Butler Township firefighter. So I started my career there in uh, I want to say like April or May of, of two thousand one. And ironically enough, um, the fire academy at Sinclair had already started, so I had to get into the fall semester. And my first day at the fire academy was September eleven, two thousand one, um, the same day the World Trade Center got hit. I had worked at the fire department over the summer, but I wasn't allowed to go on fire calls. I could go on car crashes, medic assist calls. And, you know, the chief said, until you go through the level one fire academy um, and you get trained up on SCBA use, you're not going to be able to do anything. So it was a waiting game. So I went in there, washed trucks every day, did, you know, house duties, did apparatus checks and stuff, and kind of learned what I could from the guys through company level training. But I had no formal training um, until I started Sinclair Fire Academy. And, um, Went through level one, did level two a short time after that, got my EMT certificate, and then uh, went to paramedic school. And that was kind of the beginning of the fire service career. And then we all know what happens after that. The more time that you do in the fire service, the more traumatic calls that you get exposed to, it starts to, uh, you know, to, to damage you um, mentally and or physically just from the wear and tear of being up all night, sleep deprived, breathing in smoke because we didn't believe in wearing SCBAs. Um, during overhaul or during fire investigation. And so I did a lot of damage to my body, but um, the, the worst part was I didn't know I had PTSD. PTSD was something that I had never heard of. Uh, well, I had heard of it, but you know, that was something Vietnam veterans came home with. And um, my uh, girlfriend at the time, we had gotten into a fight and I threw some water in her face. And in, a, in trying to save the relationship, I went to counseling. And when I was talking to this counselor and I kind of told him about my uh, previous history with my plane crash, um, he gave me the diagnostic statistics manual and he asked me if I knew what PTSD was. And I kind of replied, yeah, it's, uh, it's a thing those you know, guys that go to war get. And he said, I think you have PTSD. And of course, I was in denial and I said, no, that can't be. So he gave me the DSM-5 and he had me read what PTSD was as far as signs and symptoms and the definition of PTSD. And uh, that was probably, uh, that was the, the first wake-up call um, that I had received. And I want to say that was in 2002. The next couple of years, I was still on the fire department. Um, I bounced around between, you know, a couple of different fire departments uh, in the Dayton area. And um, I wasn't seeing a counselor or anything like that, but I went to the VA and I started trying to process uh, disability claims for PTSD and they kept denying and denying and denying. And so I thought, well, maybe I don't have it. But I was having the intrusive thoughts. I was having um, the nightmares. Um, and most of those were kind of still with the plane crash. But um, later on in my career, after I got into the uh, fire service and had been doing this for over 10, 15 years, um, I started having nightmares um, of some of the things that I had seen in the past um, during my career and that's where it came to uh, kind of to a head. I ended up uh, two years ago leaving the fire service. Um, I was working with the city of Huber Heights at the time. It was a great fire department, uh, great leadership, but um, I just, um, I've got kids of my own and I was, I was, uh, I'm, I'm becoming this person that I didn't want to be. Um, <clears throat> irritable all the time, sleep deprived, anger issues, um, I could go from zero to 60 in a second. Um, illogical responses to, to very minor things. Um, the last one that was recent was my son had spilled a little bit of Kool-Aid on an area rug and I lost it. And my wife and I got into a fight and it didn't get physical other than me throwing a wet rag at her. 
But um, I've already been through a divorce. I've already been through a nasty custody battle. Um, I've used alcohol for years as a crutch. I've had suicidal thoughts. Um, back when my divorce was going on with my first wife in 2012, I had three kids and they were stripped away from me. Um, not so much for anything I was doing. It was just a normal process of the courts. Uh, you get to be an every other weekend dad. And having that time um, stripped of my boys, they were six and four at the time. I had twins, uh, Bryce and Braden, and then my son, JP. And I had that time taken away from me with them. And they were pretty much the only thing that was really keeping me alive at that point. Um, and it got so bad, um, I was having thoughts of suicide. Um, I'm a <clears throat> Second Amendment guy, so I have guns. Most of the firefighters I know have guns. And uh, my dad and mom, I was actually living with them during my divorce. And my dad took all the guns away. Um, I ended up finding one, but I couldn't find the ammunition. And I drove to Gander Mountain with the intent of killing myself. And uh, I was actually walking in the store contemplating. I was like, why am I going to go in here and buy a box of ammunition? All I need is one bullet. And I was actually going to shoplift. I was going to steal a bullet out of Gander Mountain in Huber Heights. And I was going to go out there and I was going to, you know, kill myself. And... I had never had a moment of clarity. It's something that you hear about in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, when you're going to meetings and stuff, I used to do that. But uh, I had this moment of clarity, and I realized that if you do this right here in this parking lot, your friends are going to come and pick you up out of this car. Well, they're going to at least get called to check on me. Um, and I'm going to expose my suicide to all the people that I work with, police officers, firefighters, city of Huber Heights. And I... Um, I ended up going to EAP and I ended up going back to my counselor um, and doing some intense counseling sessions and stuff. But the problem was everything was always a Band-Aid fix. And even now I struggle. Um, I got out of the, the fire service in uh, January of uh, 2018, or excuse me, January of 2019. I left the fire service. Um, I now work as an EMS coordinator here locally uh, for a hospital, um, a large uh, hospital um, healthcare organization. And I still get to be with the guys in the fire service. I still get to, get to go to the fire departments to teach. Um, I, I, I get to see patients coming in and out of the emergency room. I was an EMS instructor. I was a fire instructor. I did swift water rescue and technical rescue stuff during my career. I was a fire investigator. Um, I did everything. I was on the bike team, EMS bike team. I did everything and everything I could um, in the fire service. But at the end of the day, these, uh, these demons, um, these things that we see, um, and experience, you know, every third day, it finally took its toll. And um, I had to leave for my family. Um, I was becoming a monster, and I still am. I haven't, I, I'm a little bit better off now than I was, but two years ago, I was in a really dark place, and, I, and I'm still in a dark place. I still deal with um, nightmares, I still deal with night terrors, um, insomnia. Um, I'm not using alcohol so much. Uh, any more other than recreational use. I'll have a few drinks during the week. Um, but um, <clears throat> I don't really drink a whole lot anymore. Um, about two months ago, I got obliterated drunk. I was having a bad time and uh, I was having an episode with PTSD, I think, or just not so much, of, I, I should say an episode of PTSD, but I was having a bad time with my PTSD. And I choked down, in the course of an hour, a six-pack of beer, an entire 750 mLs of Captain Morgan's Spiced Rum, and a can of Dr. Pepper. 
Um, I don't know why I did it because, uh, well, I know why I did it. Spiced rum, when I was going through all of this stuff um, during, my career, or during my career in the Navy, I would choke down a bottle of spiced rum with a couple cans of, of Dr. Pepper. And I don't know why. I haven't drank like that for 10, 10 15 years uh, using that combination of Dr. Pepper and spiced rum. But I felt myself right back to what I was in the military. Same exact thing. It was my MO. It was spiced rum and, and uh, Dr. Pepper. And my wife came home. I had the two little ones with me in the basement. And about the time I was passing out, thank God they came home because I had a three-year-old and a, and a five-year-old down there with me. And I was passed out with um, music playing on the TV. And um, a couple hours later, I was just sicker than a dog puking into the toilet. And um, so I started seeing a doctor that I had seen. Um, I actually had her speak at one of my symposiums. And she does uh, clinical psychology for military, um, police and fire. Um, I'm not going to name drop her, but she's uh, she has been stellar as far as uh, my treatment. And she recommended this program to me, the Save a Warrior. And uh, ironically enough, just like everybody, you know, you get advice, you don't follow it. Um, I had this, you know, Save a Warrior written down on a piece of paper that she had given me for about two weeks. And um, I went to a, a fire chief's meeting down in Warren County just recently. And uh, one of the members uh, of the meeting mentioned that his son had gone through the program. He was a Columbus firefighter. And he had remarked at how the, ama the amazing transformation that this uh, organization had made in his son's life. And um, so I, uh, I went home and I got on the computer and I, I submitted an application. And... Um, a couple of days later, I got a phone call for uh, what they call, um, it's not a, um, an assessment. It's like an assessment over the phone, but um, I'm trying to remember what the name of the phone call was, but uh, they, uh, they, you know, they, they have a member call you and they ask you questions and they tell you about the program. And I was uh, blessed um, to be offered a, a seat with uh, one of their upcoming cohorts or classes. And uh, so he asked me, he says, April 25th, too soon. And I was, I didn't know what to say. And I was like, yeah, man, I don't know. And he said, we can get you in August 8th. Um, but I, you know, he said, I'm going to have to get, you know, just make sure April 25th is gonna, is good to go. And I said, yeah, let's do it. You know, I said, I'll, I'll figure out the stuff with the wife. I'll figure out how to pay for it. Um, I'll figure out, you know, the stuff with work. My work has been very, very supportive. And, um, I just decided, uh, I was like, I need, I need something other than this band-aid fix. I, uh, I had researched, uh, Save a Warrior after the chief's meeting that I went to, and it looked like something amazing. I, I read a lot of the testimonials. I watched video after video about it, and I didn't realize how big they were, um, as far as treating, um, first responders and veterans um, and dispatchers and whatever with the, you know, the problems that they have. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm blessed. I'm, I'm truly humbled to, to be able to go to this and I'm looking forward to it. It's like a, you know, like a kid waiting for Christmas. I can't wait till April 25th um, to start hopefully this new path to healing because I've gotten physical with my children. I've gotten physical with my wife. Um, I think a lot of those problems manifest in my previous marriage, and that's why I went through a divorce there and a custody battle. Um, you know, I'm ready to uh, to move past this because I, for 26 years, I've struggled with this, and I'm ready to move past it and get myself to a better place. When you were on the phone with Save a Warrior, and they described the program, 
How did they de- describe it to you? Like, what did they tell you that your, you know, retreat was going to be like? So, um, they didn't really, they, they kind of told me what the program was. Um, but, uh, the, the conversation actually started off with, um, the phone call, uh, um, with, uh, so the, 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 the guy that called me, his name was Larry and, uh, he called me and we kind of introduced himself and then we started off. He kind of told me about uh, some of the things that had happened to him during his career and how this program, um, found him and he found this program and he went through it and the, uh, the transformation that it made in his life. Um, I, I would say the first thing that this conversation the first thing that I took away from this conversation was hope. I mean, he, for the first time, somebody had instilled hope in me. And it wasn't a clinical psychologist. It wasn't somebody from EAP, you know, who has no idea. This was somebody who had been on the job as a police officer, um, had been exposed to the same stuff that we get exposed to in the military and as first responders. He was also a prior military and um, so, you know, I was able to establish a real quick connection. And one of the things that they had me do in this reading uh, of this book that they want me to do required reading is called um, Change or Die. And one of the things, the very first step that they talk about is relation, being able to relate. And um, I immediately picked up on, you know, a relation from him because he was he was cut from the same you know mold that I was um, prior military life and you know uh you know career in the, in as a first responder police officer of course i went the other side uh, and did fire but um you know we see the same stuff we're exposed to the same traumas and so he told me about him and he told me about the program and how they bring you out and there's no clinical psychologists that i know of that are there it is strictly people that have similar problems and they you know they teach you about meditation and and, and these uh, resiliency techniques to get yourself through this uh you know, through this, um, this sadness, this depression, this despair, um, all of this stuff that we deal with as first responders, um, and, uh, you know, and, and people, you know, veterans of the military and, and, you know, and not just those people, everybody, you know, anybody at one time can ex- get exposed to something traumatic and they don't have to be first responder or veteran. But, um, you know, he, he kind of said, you know, we specialize this. And when he told me about their success rates, um, I, uh, you know, I was, I just kept crossing my fingers and I was like, man, I hope, uh, you know, I hope that they call me back and they offer me a spot. And he, we were talking and he said, John, he, he kind of stopped me and he says, I want to invite you uh, to the program. I want you, I want to give you a seat with our next cohort. And um, I didn't know what to do. I mean, I got choked up and teary eyed sitting on the front porch of my house. Um, I went outside because my little ones were running around and I didn't want any distractions when I was talking to him. And, um, I'm, uh, I'm just, I'm so humbled right now. I'm so just blessed to be considered, um, you know, that they considered me to come to this program. I'm going to hope in that this is going to be exactly what everybody says it's going to be. And I, I've already noticed a change in me just from reading this first book and trying some of the meditation techniques, um, that Adam Carr, who kind of runs the program here in Ohio, um, as far as, you know, as far as I know, from everything I've read, I could be mistaken, but I know he plays an important part in this uh, um, um, in this program here in Ohio. And um, I, I watched his uh, video on meditation, and I've actually been trying to do that. I think probably the hardest thing about it right now that I'm finding is stepping away for 20 minutes twice a day. You know, it, it's amazing how just 20 minutes out of your day can elude you. 
but um, I'm, I'm, I, I don't think I have ever been so motivated to do something. Um, I got through this book in a couple of days. I actually listened to it on Amazon Audible. I also purchased it. Ironically enough, it came in the mail this morning. And so I've got a hard copy of the book. I've also got it downloaded to my phone. Um, I, I just started another book that they uh, would like you to read. Um, kind of, um, you know, they want you to read the stuff uh, before you come. And so I'm starting this second book. Um, what it feels like to go to war and um, just everything I've seen on the internet about them YouTube videos talking to Larry um, other you know talking to you and um, some of the people you've talked to and what a difference it made in their life I'm just I can't wait to go can't wait to start I mean April 25th and my birthday is April 20th so I'm loving it because this is a it's like a, probably the best birthday gift I think I'm ever going to get um, around my birthday is to, to get to go to this program and uh, and hopefully make you know start a start a path to healing it's like a second chance. Yeah, it, it does. Um, and I think, you know, this isn't just about me. It's about my family. It's about all of the people that I have hurt. Um, you know, I, I was given, you know, chance after chance in the fire service. Um, I got into trouble with alcohol when I was working in Butler Township. And the fire chief, um, I'll never, probably one of the greatest fire chiefs I've ever met in my life, uh, Charlie Wiltrout. He pulled me aside one day and he, he, you know, he said, John, he goes, you've got the potential of being a great, firefighter paramedic you know he says but you've got to you know you've got to stop with these uh, these chances you're taking with alcohol um and you know and, and that was for like the first time that i really really started paying attention to when i drink and how much i drink before i go in on duty but you know we've uh, it, it's a part of our um you know it, it's funny because uh, alcohol is kind of a you know it, it's another part of our career um you know we we go out we drink we use it as a coping mechanism. Um, you know, sometimes it's illicit drugs. Sometimes it's risky behaviors. I'm a, an adrenaline junkie, so I go out and snowboard and wakeboard, and I do this stuff at the age of 45. And, uh, you know, I want to jump out of airplanes. And um, hypervigilance, I do really, really well at work. Ironically enough, I recently um, got awarded uh, these things called Network Stars. And I was, uh, my wife and I were sleeping in separate rooms. I was having nightmares. I thought we were going to get a divorce. And ironically enough, I was having no problems at work because a lot of us seem to be hypervigilant. We do really well at work. <clears throat> it's when we go home. We take this stuff home with us. We subject our families to it. <clears throat> and I'm tired of being a disappointment to my family. I'm tired of being this mean, grouchy, irritable, unapproachable person when I'm home. Um, I'm tired of being scared at night. I'm tired of not sleeping at night. I'm tired of being woke up with nightmares and night terrors. Um, I'm tired of using alcohol as a crutch. And, um, you know, there's so many of us out there that are suffering. And, and the problem is for the first time, I think, in the last five to ten years, um, especially with the, a lot of the work that you're doing, Jimmy, around here locally, um, you know, we're finally paying attention to this. And it's not about going to these seminars and learning how to pull hand lines and the latest and greatest tactics in the fire service. It's about taking care of our own. It's about bringing all this awareness and saying it's okay. It's not a disorder. It's not PTSD. It's PTS. Everything that we experience um, and suffer through is a natural side effect of the horrors that we're ex you know we're exposed to. And so I, I think it's great that uh, you know there's finally a proactive and concerted effort to uh, a concerted effort to, to get this stuff out and to say it's okay. Um, to not get labeled, um, you know, as, as a, you know, pardon my language, but as a pussy or, 
you know, or, or whatever. I mean, these guys, you know, we're, we're going out and dealing with this stuff. And, and, you know, for the longest time, I didn't want to come forward because I'm afraid of, you know, uh, fitness for duty. And I'm afraid of losing my job or losing my career. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of being ostracized and alienated by my coworkers. And for the first time, you know, we're starting to address this in the fire service. And I don't think we've gotten there yet. I, I love the fact that we're approaching that. But, you know, right, and this program is, is a perfect example of it. I wouldn't have dreamed of doing something like this while I was a firefighter. I'm glad that this happened after because I don't know if I could have gone through this as a firefighter. I think because of that fear of being labeled. Um, so, you know, it's a little bit easier for me, I think, to pull the trigger on this. But, you know, more importantly, I mean, in 25 years, I would love to get back these 25 years. If I had been given counseling and stuff after the plane crash, I never saw one doctor other than a physical doctor to make sure I was okay to fly again. Nobody talked to us about how we were feeling. Nobody talked to us about, you know, the nightmares and, and the uh, being scared and using alcohol. We never had any kind of, of treatment after this plane crash. And any one of us, it only takes one event, one event to irreparably damage you. Um, you know, and it may, not, it may not hit you now. It may manifest years later. And you may not know it, and you're drinking alcohol, and you're doing these things, these destructive, um, you know, behaviors to, uh, to cope. And we have to, you know, we have to fix that. And I'm hoping that I can go to this program and, and take away with it, one, a, you know, a, a way of life, a way of living, um, you know, without this stuff, and a way to cope, uh, compensate and cope and, and be resilient. And, you know, and maybe I can pass it on to my brothers and sisters in the fire service and in the police and, and you know, the, the military veterans and such. Yeah, man. I'm, you know, I'm sorry that there wasn't interventions back then, you know, after the crash. There wasn't really interventions at the fire department. I mean, your, your old department is just now starting a peer support team. They're going to be part of my next class in August. So, and I imagine if that same plane crash happened today it would be different. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's the thing. I mean, we look at like CISD and SISM and, you know, and, you know, I was resistant to it. I think it's, and, and this is what I got out of this book out of Change or Die. And I, I couldn't believe I'd heard this statement, but it's not that we're, um, un, you know, it's not that we don't want to change. We don't want to be forced to change. And so when you try to get somebody to change and you use facts and you use force, and you use fear, and, and those kind of tactics, whereas what I initially, just in the short phone call that I got um, with uh, uh, Larry from uh, Save a Warrior, uh, he didn't offer any of that to me. He didn't give me facts, and he didn't give me fear, and say, if you keep living like this, John, you're going to die. Um, you know, he gave me hope just by telling me his story and what this program has done for him. And I think that's the big thing. I think I think it's great that the fire service, and I appreciate what you said about apologizing. Um, you know, the thing is, is where I worked and the places that I've worked that didn't have this, they weren't like any other fire department out there. I mean, it's tradition, you know. Um, you know, we, we had this tradition and we were resistant to change. I mean, God, you know, firefighters are the worst at trying to change. I remember when they, they started coming out with the... Um, Remember the, the uh, fluorescent um, uh, traffic vest that we had to wear? And they started putting stripes on the back of the fire truck, you know, the high visibility stripes, and everybody was all up in arms and, oh, my God, you know. And then we went from the traditional helmets to more of the modern helmets. And, um, you know, I, I still like the traditional helmets. That's what I was wearing at uh, my last fire department. But, um, you know, we resist this change. I remember when uh, air packs, you know, we would ditch the air pack and guys would be chain-smoking cigarettes while they're doing overhaul. 
And, you know, this culture that, you know, with you, um, with Firefighter Cancer Consultants and some of the other work that you've done on the cancer awareness stuff, you know, we've seen the change. And that's what I think the next group of fire service professionals, when we think of people like Frank Brannigan and John Norman and John Salka and um, Rick Lasky and all of these pioneers of firefighting and these guys that went out and they taught us better ways of doing the job. Now it's not about tactics. Not it's not about you know these these things that uh, these guys learned from years on the job of how to do our job better. Now we're starting to see the next group of pioneers, of fire service pioneers, and it's on the mental health stuff. It's on the sleep deprivation. It's on the meditation. It's on the uh, um, nutrition and fitness. All of this stuff because this stuff is really what's killing these firefighters. The days of buildings falling down on you with lightweight construction and bowstring truss roofs. Um, and airbags going off, uh, like the Dayton firefighter that was injured when the airbag blew his face. Um, you know, all of that stuff and, you know, over just over the years and it, to nobody's, you know, nobody was complicit in it. But we focused on all this stuff and we failed to see the other stuff that was going on behind the scenes. And so I think it's great that there's this, uh, you know, this, um, this new battle that we're facing and it's bringing awareness and, and making guys understand that you don't have to be ostracized. Um, you know, we need to accept this, embrace this because it's a normal thing that happens to us when we're exposed to these traumas. That's perfect, man. So when we're recording this, it's actually April 10th. Okay. And, uh, you know, you got basically two weeks before you're, you're heading down there. Right. And so uh, we're going to call this just basically part one of uh, John Hildebrand, give you the whole background story, and then we'll reconvene. I mean, I'm sure I'll talk to you beforehand, but we'll sit down and actually press the record button in a little bit of time and uh, just kind of go over your experience there and um, how it's helped you evolve to the John Hildebrand 2.0. Right. Yeah, the, the new and improved John Hildebrand. <laughs> And I've got the morals of an alley cat, so these guys have got their work cut out for me. <laughs> nice. All right, John, we'll, we'll call it a day. I'm glad you came into this uh, very professional studio here. Yeah, hey, I like it. It's comfy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll have you back here in just, you know, a little bit of time. So I'm not even, I don't even know, weeks, months, I'm not sure. But when it's, when you're ready, we'll sit down and we'll go from there. Yeah, so. absolutely. I can't wait to do it. All right, so... Uh,